Well, as you know, we're in the middle of a series called the Why Series, and we're so glad that you're joining us today. We probably have some visitors with us today. We probably have a lot more people who are watching online than normally would, so welcome to all of you who are watching online. We've had people watching online from Europe and Africa and Asia and, of course, all over the United States. There are, there are people even this morning that tell me I watch online regularly when I'm not here in St. Louis. So welcome to all of you. We're glad that you're joining us today. As a part of this Why series, you got to see a little preview on the screen there of all the topics that we're talking about. And we started this off by talking about the Apostle Paul and his why, his how, and his what. Why did he do the things that he did? He said that it was because of the gospel, because of the good news about Jesus Christ. That was the motivation for everything he did. His how, his methodology, was to be adaptable, to be flexible. And his what were the things he actually did to integrate into different cultures, to adapt to them. The things that he did to be like the Jewish people, like the non-Jewish people, like the weak, like the strong, he integrated with them. He did not try to import his culture and preferences to them. He adapted to them because his why, the good news about Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ was so important to him that he was willing to sacrifice his preferential uh, what's and how's and all those things for the why, for the sake of the gospel, to reach those who were far from God. That was important to him. And today, our focus is on why worship. Why worship? Why do we worship? What is worship? How do we worship? What does all of that look like? Before we explore that in detail today, here's what I ask you to do. Let's all just bow our heads together and pray to God and ask him to teach us what he wants us to learn today. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we are so thankful to you for how you have placed us in a country where we have incredible freedom to gather here publicly to worship you together. Where we have the freedom to study your word openly and for what you teach us through it. And Lord, I pray that as we talk about worship this morning to help us to really understand the kind of worship that you want from us, what that should look like in our lives. Teach us, Lord, what you want us to learn today. And in your name I pray, amen. Well, when we talk about worship, usually our minds tend to go to worship music. That's just kind of how that works. Those two things tend to go together. So we do need to talk about worship music uh, today. Worship music has never been a controversial topic in churches. I'm sorry. This is so embarrassing. That's the wrong slide. There we go. Much better. Worship music has always been a controversial topic in the church. And this goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, actually a couple of thousand years and beyond. In the Christian church, it goes back two millennia. In the early church, the debates were over whether or not you should be able to sing new songs or you could only sing hymns. And in the first few centuries... Most Christian churches moved away from singing any songs other than what was directly in Scripture, primarily in the Psalms. There were debates over whether or not you could use instruments in churches, and most churches banned instruments from churches. They considered them to be secular and worldly. No instruments, just singing. Churches then for hundreds of years went back and forth over whether or not you could sing in church or whether all you could do was chant in church. Aren't you glad singing one? Can you imagine all of us just chanting every day in church? Well, then that's all we would have known. So that was a debate that people had. In the 13th century, churches who used choirs were criticized by more traditional churches 
because choirs have multiple parts of harmony in them. And the prevailing thought among conservative churches was that when you have multiple parts, that's lewd, that's immoral. You should all sing in unison. And so churches with choirs were looked down upon and many churches would not have a choir because it was, can you imagine that? Can you believe that? Choirs were considered to be immoral in churches back in the 13th century. In the 14th and 15th centuries, worship music in churches was performed only by paid singers for the most part. Ordinary people usually did not come to church and worship. It was paid singers, often on the sides, kind of on balconies, who would sing to everyone else in the churches. In the 16th century, churches started to sing congregationally more together. And what happened was that people started questioning whether or not it was okay to sing in the common language or whether or not you had to sing in Latin. And so there's a big disagreement about that, whether or not you had to sing in Latin because Latin was kind of treated as a sacred language at that point. Also around this time, musicians started to rewrite secular songs with Christian lyrics. The thinking was we could get people to sing biblically accurate content in churches and biblical concepts in churches, but they'll remember it better because it's tunes that they're familiar with. And obviously this was very controversial because you had one group of people that said, how could you allow that secular tune into your church? And then you had another group of people that said, a tune is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. So why don't we redeem this for God? And you had that debate that went back and forth. Later, many churches revived exclusive psalm singing, psalmody. And these churches would only sing the psalms. They would never write new songs about God. In fact, those were banned from many churches. You could not sing songs if it were not the psalms. There were new divisions over instruments in churches around this time. Many churches who had organs built into their facility ripped the organs out because the organ was now viewed as something that was a distraction from the worship of God. It was loud. You couldn't hear the voices as well when the organ was playing. And so they got rid, you know, or the organ we think of as this traditional church instrument. Many churches a few hundred years ago ripped them out of their churches because it was considered a distraction from the voices. In the early 18th century, a man named Isaac Watts was a contemporary songwriter. He wrote these things called hymns. And Isaac Watts wrote a lot of hymns which in this country were almost universally rejected. In fact, they were despised because they were not word-for-word scripture. They were based on scripture, but they weren't actually scripture word-for-word. And so most churches in this country back in the 18th century, the early 18th century, outright banned hymns from the church. Think about that for a minute. Most churches in this country used to ban hymns because they were the contemporary music of their day. Now, eventually, by the end of the 18th century, most churches did start accepting and singing hymns in their services. And the songs of Isaac Watts and Wesley and many other hymns were gradually accepted into churches to the point where eventually they became as sacred as exclusive psalm singing or Latin songs once were. In the 19th century, churches again debated if it was okay to have a church choir. At this point, many people thought that the choir was too showy, and so you shouldn't have a choir because it was a distraction from the worship of the people in the church. Or some thought it's okay to have a choir, but they have to be in the back of the auditorium where no one can sing them because otherwise they're too much of a distraction. Okay. So what's the point of this little history lesson? 
When we talk about worship, we often tend to go right to worship music. So much so that worship, the word, is often treated as just synonymous with worship music and singing. And because of that, as important as worship music is, we have often elevated the musical portion of worship to a place of prominence that overshadows what worship really can be and what worship really is. And when we raise that to such a level of prominence, all of a sudden, the preferences and traditions and styles that we prefer about worship music become very, very sacred to us because we view that as worship itself, as if that's what worship is. It's the style of worship music that I prefer or I grew up with, and that's what worship is. And so this has led to some very strong opinions and divisions about instruments and lyrics and vocals and tunes and and all of that. Because we view our worship style, our methodology, in many ways as being kind of sacred. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Have you ever heard that before? Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And what's amazing to me is that not long ago, many of the things that we might consider to be sacred today were actually new and contemporary and were an attack on things that people back then felt was sacred back then. And I think it's important that we recognize that cycle that we're in, to take that step back and look at the big picture here so that we can learn from history. Because worship and division over worship music has been a reality for hundreds and hundreds of years. The division doesn't change, just the things that are treated as sacred and new change. And what we're going to do this morning is go back to a passage in the book of John where Jesus is talking with someone about worship division. We're going to go to John chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. Open up to John chapter 4. If you want to, you can go to our website, efree.org slash Bible. You can pull that up or you can go to the YouVersion Bible app. You will find us under the events area. Look for First Free Church and you'll get to follow along with everything we talk about today. In John 4, Jesus is traveling with his disciples through a region known as Samaria. Now, the Samaritans and the Jewish people did not get along very well. The Jewish people thought that the Samaritans had intermarried with non-Jewish people. So they were Jewish people, but they're intermarried with non-Jewish people hundreds of years earlier. And so now their descendants, they actually literally call them, this is, this is horribly racist, but this is what they call them. They call them half-breeds. The Samaritans, as a derogatory term, were called half-breeds because they were half-Jewish and they were half-non-Jewish. That's what the Jewish people thought about them. Whether or not that's actually the case, there's a debate about that, but that's what the Jews thought. So there were squabbles between the Samaritans and the Jewish people over lots of different things, but the biggest one that they argued over was over worship. You see, at one time, the Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem by the Jewish people. And then later on, the Samaritans decided, a long time after that, we're going to help you with the temple in Jerusalem, and the Jewish people turned them away. And then at one time, the Jewish people banned the Samaritans from worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem and told the Jewish people, when you come in here to worship, you should pray curses on the Samaritan people. And so the Samaritan people built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they told all of their people, this is where God really did some special stuff. This is a holy place, not Jerusalem. This is the temple you should worship. 
or at which you should worship God. And so by the time of Jesus, that temple had already been destroyed, but the ruins were still there, and the Samaritan people were worshiping on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Jesus and his disciples are heading now in John 4 through Samaria on their way to Galilee. Now, you may have heard in the past, and I'm just going to mention this just to set the record straight, because a lot of people, when they're talking about Jesus and his disciples going through Samaria, will tell you that normally, because of this hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews, Jewish people would go around the Jordan River to the west side, or I guess that's west side on my end. It'd be over here for you if you're looking at the map. They would go around the Jordan River and over the Sea of Galilee, and that's how they would get to the Galilee region because they weren't willing to go through Samaria. Honestly, that is just an urban myth. Uh, there's no evidence that Jews actually traveled all the way around or avoided Samaria. It was, there's lots of evidence that it was a normal thing to travel through Samaria. In fact, uh, rabbis would tell people it's okay for the Samaritans to watch your animals while you're going through. It's okay to eat from the Samaritans. They didn't make you unclean. That is all kind of an exaggeration of the real situation there. But there was this animosity between them. It just wasn't quite as elaborate as many people have claimed. So Jesus and his disciples are walking through Samaria. They come to a village. Outside, there's a well. Jesus sits down there, and they need some food. So the disciples are going into the village to get some food. Why it takes all of them to go get some food, I don't know. But for some reason, all 12 of these guys have to go into the grocery store to remember what's on the list and figure out the the stuff that they need and bring it back to Jesus. While they are gone, This Samaritan woman comes out of the village in the middle of the day, which is a little unusual, uh, to meet, or not to meet, to, to draw water from this well, and Jesus asks her for a drink. So she draws them up some water, they strike up a conversation, and that is where we're going to join them in verse 19. John chapter 4, verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. The reason she said this is because earlier in the passage, Jesus has told her some things about her that there's no way he could have possibly known. He's told her about her living situation and the husband. She's had five husbands. She's currently living with a man who's not her husband. She did not say this. There's no way he could have known this. There's no one else around the well who could have told him this. And so she goes, wow, how do you know this stuff? You must be a prophet. So sir, you must be a prophet, she says. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship. Well, we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshiped. It's a good question, right? This is the hot issue of the day. This between the Samaritans and the Jewish people, and here's a guy who is a Jew, but he's clearly, there's something special about him. He knows stuff he shouldn't know. This is the question we're all kind of wanting to know about and talk about. Um, Some people think that she said this to distract from the conversation. We really don't know that. This was a legitimate, a good question to ask. And so she wants to know, why is it that we have this disagreement over worship? Why is it that you Jews say worship in the temple in Jerusalem and we Samaritans say worship here on on Mount Gerizim, the ruins of the temple there? Which one is right? Which method, which approach, which style should we use? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. What Jesus is saying here is that the argument over worship methodology between the Samaritans and the Jews is about to become completely meaningless because the whole game is going to change. 
He says in verse 22, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. And this was not a put down. This was not Jesus getting in a little jab there and saying, you guys don't know what we know, and salvation comes to the Jewish people. You're, you're worse than us. It was not a put down. The Samaritan scriptures were not as complete as the Hebrew scriptures. They parted ways, and so there were elements of the Samaritan scriptures that matched up and elements that they had completely missing, and they didn't accept what was in the Hebrew scriptures, which was true, it was inspired, it was from God, but the Samaritans didn't have that. But one thing that was in the Samaritan scriptures was a prophecy, same as in the Hebrew scriptures, that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, a Jew. And so in the Samaritan scriptures, it says the Messiah is going to be Jewish. What Jesus is saying here is not a jab. It is a connection. It's an acknowledgement that even your religious leaders would agree. Salvation comes through the Jewish people. It's in your own scriptures. Verse 23, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. The time is coming, and it's here now. In other words, there's a transition happening. It's already underway, but it's not complete yet. Jesus is bringing something new into being here. And these are the worshipers that God is really after. The Father is looking for those who will worship him this way, in spirit and in truth. What does Jesus mean by that? In spirit and in truth. What is he talking about? When he says in spirit, is he talking about God's spirit, the Holy Spirit? Or is he talking about man's spirit? We will worship him internally through our spirits. When he's talking about truth here, worshiping in truth, is he talking about the truth of the Bible? Is he talking about the truth of the Holy Spirit? The spirit is sometimes called the spirit of truth. Is he talking about Jesus himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Is he talking about the God of truth, the God who is truth? What does he mean here? The reality is, honestly, there is no universal agreement about what that phrase actually means. And all of those views are legitimate, potentially accurate perspectives. And so I'm just going to be honest with you and say we don't entirely know what spirit and truth actually meant, what Jesus meant by that. We do know some things for certain, but we don't know for sure what he meant. It's very possible that Jesus, when he said this spirit and truth, meant it as a general phrase. It's very possible that he actually meant to kind of include all of those ideas. And if Jesus were standing next to us today and we said, Jesus, why did you say spirit and truth. What did you mean by that? Did you mean this specific thing or this specific thing or this specific thing? It's very possible that Jesus would have said, you are overanalyzing that. I meant what I said, spirit and truth. You're going to worship in spirit, enabled by the Holy Spirit, through your spirit. It's in spirit. It's a generic thing. I meant what I said about truth. It's authentic. It's true. It's enabled by the spirit of truth because of the, the way, the truth, and the life, which is me, and for the God of truth, and explained and taught by the word of truth. All of those things may well be included in there. We don't know exactly what that spirit and truth means, but we do know something. The worship that God was getting and the worship that God wanted didn't match up. The worship God was getting from the Samaritans and the Jewish people 
And the worship God wanted, Jesus said, didn't match up. This is what God really wants. He wants worshipers in spirit and in truth, not just at these two locations. And I think it would be wise for us to really consider that today. Does our worship match up with what God is wanting? Last week when we talked about why church, we said that the church is the people of God. The Bible says that we, his followers, are his new temple. We are his dwelling. We are his building where he wants to live and commune with us. And this is part of what Jesus is communicating here. It's part of what he's alluding to, that this place of worship, the the Jewish temple and the Samaritan Mount Gerizim, those systems of worship, those are going to go away. Those locations, those approaches, those methodologies, those styles of worship, those are going to go away. And the people who are true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, not in ritual and hypocrisy. The worship that God wanted and the worship that God was getting didn't match up. And it's very sad to me that oftentimes I think in churches, what we think is worshiping God may not actually be the worship that he really wants. When we come here into this building and we go through the motions of worshiping God, oftentimes we treat that as synonymous with worship music. And I sang the songs and I showed up in church and I fulfilled my obligations. Isn't that what God really wants? Isn't that what God expects of me? I came here, I came to church, that was my worship, now I can go about my life the rest of the week. And what we learn from the Samaritan woman and Jesus' interaction with her is that true worship is very different from that. True worship is not about is not about a method, activity, location, or style. True worship is not about a method, activity, location, or style. It's not about this temple versus that temple. It's not about do we worship in Jerusalem or do we worship up north at Mount Gerizim or some people worship down south in caves and they had a whole way of doing that. That's not what it's about. True worship starts with a life that is transformed by God's spirit and his truth. True worship starts with a life that is transformed by God's spirit and his truth. That's what this is all about. Paul says in Philippians chapter three that when we worship God, we worship by his spirit. Worship is all about God and his truth. It's all about what he's done for us in our lives and who he is and his truth. I want to read you a quote from a man named Vaughn Roberts. He wrote a book about worship, and here's what he says. Worship never begins with us. It is always a response to the truth. It flows out of an understanding of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. It begins with his revelation and redemption. So we must ensure that the Bible which contains that revelation and points us to God's work of redemption stays right at the heart of our meetings and our own spiritual lives. You see, it's not about a method or an activity or a style or a location or any of that stuff. It's not about this mountain or that mountain. It's not about do we sing psalms or do we sing new songs. Psalms versus chants. It's not about instruments versus no instruments or hymns versus psalms or hymns versus contemporary songs. That's not what worship is all about. What God is concerned about is what's on the inside. Spirit and truth. Is worship coming from spirit and truth regardless of the style, the approach, the methodology that's going on? I want you to think of it this way. Those of you who are wives or girlfriends, 
Imagine this. Your significant other brings you a lovely bouquet of flowers. And you're very excited by this. You happen to like flowers. And then he takes you out on a nice date to a fancy restaurant. And it's, it's wonderful food. Amazing. And then afterwards, he gives you a box of chocolates, your favorite kind. And you think, this is really special. This is really something neat. And then at the end of the night, when it's all over, he says, well, I guess I can check that off my list. I fulfilled my obligation. He pulls out his little planner and check. Made wife feel like she matters. How, I'm, I'm seeing some looks of shock and awe. This is not like a confession, okay? This is, it's just an illustration. How loved do you feel at that point? How valued do you feel at that point when you find out that all of that stuff was just going through the motions? All of that stuff was just because it was an expectation. The next six days, he doesn't say a word to you. He goes to work, comes home, he does his hobbies, video games, woodworking, movies, golf, whatever you're into. Doesn't say a word to you. And you start to wonder if maybe what happened a week ago wasn't really that genuine after all. And so you approach him and you say, do you really want to be in this relationship? Because I thought you did a week ago, but now based on the way you're acting and your your life here, I'm not so sure if you do. And he looks at you shocked and says, didn't I already fulfill my obligation? Wasn't that what you expected of me? What more do you want from me? I took you on a nice date. I gave you flowers. I gave you chocolates. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough to fulfill my obligation here? And ladies, what do you say? Get out. (laughs) Why? Because what he did and what he said showed that he did not really value you. See, he acted like he did, but then he followed it up in a way that revealed he didn't really value you. He didn't really see the worth that was there. That is what worship is really all about. It's about worth. That's the why of worship. Why do we worship God? Because he is worth it. Now, you may think that we worship God because of what he's done for us. And that's a good reason to worship God. But the Bible says that one day, every single person, whether they have been redeemed by God or not, whether they have trusted in God or not, will worship God. Not because he saved them, but because of who he is. They will acknowledge and honor God because of who he is. And so we worship God because he is worth it. The Bible says it like this. He is worthy. He is worthy. John says in Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the lamb, that's Jesus, who was slaughtered, that refers to the cross. He is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And that word worthy means deserving. It means of value. It means he's worth it. When I talked about that husband or boyfriend who did not show love throughout the week, what that communicated to you was that she was not worth it to him. His hobbies were worth it. His hobbies were worth his attention and his affection and his adoration, but she was not worth it. And many of us have that same attitude toward God. Listen, God does not want obligatory religious robots. God wants worshipers in spirit and in truth. He wants authentic worshipers, not just a weekend ritual, but a daily lifestyle of devotion. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way 
to worship him. Our lives are supposed to be an act of worship to God. It's a mistake to think that worship is only what happens in this room. Worship happens just as much on Monday as it does on Sunday, or it should. This should be worshipful, absolutely, but no more so than going to work, hanging out with friends, spending time with our family. All of those are supposed to be acts of worship to God, worship throughout the week. Jesus did not say, true worshipers will worship me with their singing. He, Paul didn't say, let you, let, treat your worship singing as your living and holy sacrifice. That's your true act of worship. That's not what it's about. He didn't mention singing at all in there. True worship is lived out in our everyday lives. True worship is lived out in our everyday lives. Now, we don't always know how to do that. We haven't all been taught how to do that. So let me just give you some examples, and maybe you can see yourself in some of these. When you study the Bible, not just to gain knowledge, but so that you can truly grow close to God and spend time with God and learn from him about how he wants you to live your life. That's showing God that he's worth it. He's worth your time. He's worth your attention. He's worth your adoration. When you respond to your kids with a gentle answer, because you have been walking closely with God, because you're listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and when you felt like responding harshly, and you sensed God saying, no, no, that's not how I want you to react in this situation, and you responded in obedience, that is you telling God, you are worth it. You are worth my obedience. You are worth my following. When you help your neighbor, not because you're going to get something in return, but because you want to show the love of Christ to them genuinely. You want to serve them. You want to share your faith with them, share the good news about Jesus with them. You are communicating at that point, God, you are worth it. Jesus, the model that you gave me is worth it. Your love and your good news is worth sharing with these people. You are worth it. I worship you in what I'm doing. What about school? I know most of you are out of school at this point, but you'll go back eventually, many of you. How can school be an act of worship? When you study, not just to get good grades, but because you know that God has given you a brain and he wants you to use it. He wants you to use the gifting and the intellect and the ability that he gave you. And so you study not just out of the grades and to graduate and all of that stuff, but in response to how God has made you. You study because you want to be productive with your life, with what God has given you. You want to provide for your family. You want to be able to give to the, to the needy. You want to be able to give to missions. You want to be able to give to the church. You want to support the work that God is doing. And so you work hard, not just in the future, but now with your studies. That study can be an act of worship. Work is an act of worship. When you go to work, not just to earn a paycheck, but because of what you can do with that paycheck to bless others and provide for your family. When you view your time at work, not just as time to just kind of do the widgets, but time where you can build relationships with people and introduce them to Jesus and do good for them in ways that cause them to glorify God, your work is an act of worship. And when we gather to sing together, it's an opportunity for us to do together what we should have been doing all week long. When we come together to sing and worship God together, it should, be, it should be hundreds of voices who throughout the week have been worshiping God saying, now we are gonna come together and we're gonna worship God together. We're gonna do what we were doing Saturday, but we're gonna now do it together on Sunday. That's all it is. It's a continuation. And it's in preparation for the next week to encourage and equip us for the worship that we're going to do that follows.
And so we're going to talk about worship music a little bit right now. And I'm going to invite Nathan to join me on stage. And he is actually going to tell us about the how, the why, the what of worship music. Because we do want to talk about being intentional with what we sing, with how we gather together to praise God together, just like we should be doing throughout the week. Would you welcome him? Well, good morning, everyone. As Adam shared, music is just one of the ways that we express our worship to God. And I want to talk a, a little bit, rather than talking about the aspects and the perspectives and the views that uh, the church and many others have debated for centuries, we're going to look to the Bible and we're going to see a few examples of musical worship in the Bible. And first and foremost, worship music that we choose, we choose music that directs us to songs about God, as well as we look to songs that are to God. And one of the ways that we look at this, as you'll see here, is in Isaiah 6.1. So if you follow along with me, Isaiah 6.1 reads, It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, or angels, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You see, when we sing songs about God, just as the angels are here, we are reminding ourselves and those around us of the goodness, the love, the mercy of our great God. And as we do this, it should stir within us the need and the desire to respond to God. And so as you follow along with me here a little bit further in Psalm 102, it says, shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. The, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. You see, once we are reminded of who God is and what he has done for us, we're in a much better position to sing and respond to God from the heart. The message actually states in this that we can sing ourselves into the presence of God. You know, as we worship song, as we worship by singing songs that first remind us about God and then allow us to respond to God, we seek to clear the way so that people can encounter Jesus. One of the ways that we do that in our worship gatherings is in how we plan and follow liturgical form for our worship gatherings. So first, we seek to engage people. We want to engage one another to remind us that we are all not so different from each other. Whether, whether we are talking about a longtime believer or someone who is here exploring their faith, the most important thing that we can do first is provide common ground for us all. The next thing we want to do is involve everyone. When we seek to involve everyone, we show that we all have the ability to worship God. The challenge, the third piece here, the challenge from our musical worship and our teaching then equips us with how we carry biblical truths with us throughout our everyday lives. As Adam was sharing, it's not just about what happens here on Sunday. It's what we do throughout the rest of the week. And finally, we send. Once we are equipped and challenged by the truths of God, we then send so that we can carry out the love of God into the world. 
So the songs that we sing and the methods that we use to select them is a big part of the how in our musical worship. As we evaluate and we determine songs to use in our musical worship, we follow certain criteria. So first and most importantly is that we want the songs that we sing and the singing of the songs that we have here to be based on biblical truths. The Bible has to be the basis for the truth of everything that we sing. Second, we want the songs that we sing to convey a comprehensible truth that is understandable by our congregation and for everyone that's around us. I find it important, especially with this one, because uh, I don't know if a few of you remember, there was a, a song a few years back by Chris Tomlin. It was called, Whom Shall I Fear, God of Angel Armies. It had a line in it that went something like this. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. And so the important thing about having a compre- comprehensible truth that our congregation can understand is in this. At the time that this song came out, we happened to be serving at a church plant. And in this church plant, there were a lot of people who were exploring their faith, a lot of people who were still trying to seek out and understand what a relationship with God looked like. So do you think to sing a song about a God who commands angels would have been something that they would have related to or understood or been able to comprehend? No. Now, the amazing thing is I I got to sit in a workshop with Ed Cash, who was one of the writers of this song, and I know the story behind it. I know what drove him to write this. I know the, the space that he was in when he was writing the song, and it's an amazing story. But for that congregation at that time, it was not the right song to sing. So next, we want the songs that we sing to be relatable. The words that we sing need to be relatable to us and find connection. If we can relate to a song or a lyric, it bears a greater emotional connection for us. And if it is relatable, it is more memorable. So if a song is memorable, it gets stuck in your head. Whether it is a melody or a lyric that finds its way, it provides a sonic hook of sorts. And when this happens, we are allowing biblical, comprehensible, relatable, and memorable truths to pour into our imaginations and memories in a way that only music can so that we can carry these truths with us beyond Sunday and throughout the week. Um, I have a question here, and this, I think, I don't think this is going to be very divisive, but uh, who here likes bacon? Bacon makes everything better, am I right? Now, here's the thing about bacon, and it's got to be real bacon. You can't, you can't be cooking turkey bacon or the tofurkey bacon. It's got to be the real deal. The amazing thing about bacon is when it's cooked, and you come back into that kitchen where it's cooked and it's been enjoyed, that aroma sticks around with you, doesn't it? You could, you could have it in the morning, and you could come back in the afternoon, and you can realize, hey, somebody had some bacon. Bacon was cooked here. Bacon was enjoyed. And it's something that carries through the week. And so as we seek to, to bring these songs that have biblical, comprehensible, relatable, memorable truths with us throughout the week, we want it to be like that bacon. We want it to come with us throughout the week, that aroma of that worship to follow with us all the way through. And so why do we worship with music? First, we worship because God is worthy. Adam shared that a little bit earlier. And I would say that a problem that we often face is when we feel we should be getting something from our worship. Now, the idea that, that this can become criteria for what entails good worship is a dangerous one. 
And I believe that this is a direct result of our inability to ask ourselves, what are we giving in our worship? Or what are we bringing to God in our worship? And when we do that, we can often place musical worship in this space of constant evaluation. We ask those around us, how was worship today? It's real easy to evaluate. When I think the better question for us to ask is how was your worship today? Another reason we proclaim these truths is to proclaim the truths to those around us that are unaware of the love of God. You see, we have a unique opportunity as believers in Jesus to proclaim these truths with exultation and deep heartfelt affection for God in a way that those that are far from God cannot help but take notice that what we have and what we proclaim is far better than anything the world has to offer. And lastly, our musical worship has a benefit to the body of believers. Looking back in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, where the angels were proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. You might find yourself going to the Chris Tomlin version of the song, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Or maybe you hear the hymn, holy, holy, holy. I don't think it's either one of these. You see, with these angels, they are proclaiming. They're calling out one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. This isn't a song necessarily. This is a victory chant. This is a victory chant with these angels, one to another. Not calling out to God, not calling out to Isaiah, but calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And there was a moment here when these angels are proclaiming this, that the very threshold and the doorpost of the temple shook. Now, I've not been in many earthquakes, but what I can tell you when an earthquake happens is that the safest place for you to be is in the threshold, is by the doorposts. Their worship was so intense. It was so fervent that the safest place to be was no longer safe. I want this church, I want myself to worship in such a way that the doorposts and the thresholds of my very heart and soul shake. I don't want it to be safe. I want it to spur us on to obedience and doing the things that take us out of our comfort zone. I'm reminded of last week when we commissioned Dan and Stephanie. Dan and Stephanie are leaving this safe place. Their worship has taken them from this safe place to take the love of God and the gospel to a place across the entire planet. I think of Kelly leaving this safe place. The safe thing is to stay here. The safe thing is to stay here. But God calls us to more than just being safe. And I will say this, and these are my final thoughts. No one can worship for anyone else. I want you to hear that. No one can pry open the lips and force praises out of anyone else's mouth but themselves. Only you can offer the praises that our God deserves. Only you can decide to deny a rock or a tree your place in worship. And only you can decide to give him more, more of your heart, more of your voice, and more of your love. And personally, I can do better. Because I won't withhold, but I will shamelessly surrender the worship that is stored up in my own heart. And I invite you to do the same.
because he deserves more. You know, as we plan through the week, as we look to the songs that we sing, as we look to provide biblical, comprehensible, relatable, memorable truths that carry with us, like bacon, I want you to know that this is an opportunity for us to prepare and equip you, not for just what happens here, but it prepares and equips you for what happens outside of here and beyond in your lives. So thank you. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for sharing your heart. Since we're talking about worship and worship music is an important part of worship, I wanted you to hear from Nathan today just to kind of hear the heart that he has for music and why we sing and why we, why we sing together on Sunday. And it's important that our worship music be well thought out. He mentioned it needs to be biblically accurate. It needs to be comprehensible. We need to understand it. It needs to be relatable because we're the ones worshiping. It needs to be memorable because it should equip us for worship the rest of the week. When you're facing a difficult situation this week at work, I hope that some of the songs we sing will come back into your head and will get you to focus your attention back on God and use that as a time to worship God instead of to gripe to yourself. See, the worship that we do here can help equip us for the rest of the week, and it's also a chance for us to come together and worship God. But as Nathan was talking, I was sitting back there, and a thought popped into my head, and I pulled out my phone, I started using my calculator, and I went, I wonder... What percentage of our total time, we'll say awake in a week, is spent here singing songs together? What we traditionally say is our worship. What percentage is of, uh, a percentage of that is that of our total time awake a week? And it's about half of 1%. What that tells me is that for many of us, God is getting half of 1% of our expected worship. We should be worshiping God with our lives in everything we do. It shouldn't just be here, although this is important, and we've talked about that. But we need to put that in perspective of the worship that God truly wants from us. It's in spirit and in truth. It's our lives as a living and holy sacrifice, as our true act of worship in everything we do throughout the week. This is just that sweet time when we get to come and do it together, which is awesome. But it's one part of the worship that God wants from us. We switched our service around this morning so that we could have a song time after the message. You may have noticed, we only did one song so far. We've got a few more coming. And I wanna share with you what I do when we're singing songs together. Let me just share with you the songs we're gonna sing and talk about what that means to me because when I'm singing songs out there with you, I am thinking about the lyrics. I am praying them to God if it's appropriate or I'm declaring it to those around me to let them know this is what I believe. We believe this together. King of my heart. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run. That means that God is my stability. Not other people, other things, other substances. God is my stability when I have trouble. Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves. That means that God is what keeps pushing me forward. That means that when rough, stormy seas hit, God is my anchor. He keeps me solid and grounded. Oh, he is my song. He is my reason for singing. He is the reason for my joy. That's God. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I'm not worthy. He's worthy, but I am not. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. We don't live like that sometimes. So often we live like we're slaves to this world when really God has set us free. We need to remind ourselves of that. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Not who my friends say I am, not who my parents say I am, 
Not who the world says I am, not who the TV says I am. I am who you say I am. We need to remind each other of that. The splendor of a king, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice. We serve a great, big, beautiful God who is worthy to be praised. And we should do that together. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow with humble adoration and then proclaim my God, how great thou art. We serve a God who is worthy to be praised. Not just here and now, but with everything we do throughout the week, we should be worshiping God together. Would you pray with me? And then we're gonna do that. Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our time. You are worthy of our affection, our attention, and our adoration. And so, Lord, we now together, as a church, collectively, will seek to worship you, not just by singing, not just by going through the motions, but from spirit and truth, saying you, God, are worthy, and I adore you, and I praise you, and I glorify you, and I want everybody to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.